Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. grab your Bibles, go and grab them, turn to Matthew chapter one, or pull up your device, Matthew chapter one. We're continuing our way through the genealogy of Jesus, his origin story, and so we'll cover a few verses this morning. And I don't know how your Christmas mornings go at your house. Um, How many of you are um, one gift at a time people? Everybody take your turn, open one gift at a time. Raise your hand, how many of you? And how many of you are uh, ravenous wolves when it comes to opening presents in your house, paper flying everywhere? All right, good for you. All right, Uh, I grew up, again, I'm the oldest of six, so there were eight of us total. And uh, my mom is a big believer in the traditions of Christmas. And so we did one at a time. Uh, but also we got three gifts. Each of us got three gifts because mama always said, if Jesus got three, why do you think you get more than that? And so uh, we got three gifts, but we did one at a time. So for eight of us, it meant it took seven and a half days for us to go through Christmas. Uh, but it, it, it took a while for us to get through it. I remember growing up thinking, this is taking forever. I just, man, I just, I just wanna play Tecmo Bowl. Why can't I go play my Nintendo? What's happening? Uh, but as, we got, as I got older and now we have kids, what's how we do it in our family too? Because I wanna cherish those moments. Like I don't wanna just blast my way through it. I wanna sit in that for a bit. So here's what I wanna encourage us to do this morning. We're gonna talk about the love of God. It can feel so elementary to talk about this, but I wanna encourage us just to sit in it this morning. Let's just rest in this fact that God loves you today. He really, really loves you. We've got all kinds of jacked up ideas of what love means. And so that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But what I wanna look at this morning is how we get back to the fact that God actually loves us. So Matthew chapter one, I'm gonna begin in verse six. On the screen will be all the scriptures we're gonna use tonight or today. And we have to take a long time because we have a long time. So we're gonna have to just really sit in the whole Bible today as we study. Uh, But I wanna put this in context Uh, Matthew has written the genealogy of Jesus and he's done it in three sections, three groups of 14 generations. And that's important because that's intentional. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. So this is the second group. And in this group, he moves from really the Abraham story we talked about last week and all of these scandalous people. And now he's got a section that focuses on the kings of Israel. So he takes us through the genealogy of the kings of Israel. And just like last week, this is a mixed bag of good people and really raunchy people, like in the midst of all of this. But in the middle here of the kings is where we're gonna study. But I want us to see more of a theology of kingship throughout the whole Bible and where I think the Lord is leading us this morning from the scriptures. So Matthew chapter one, verse six, where we're gonna begin. And Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a king who came in and he was gonna lead Israel. But in the midst of his reign, there was a civil war in Israel. And this is where Israel breaks into the northern kingdom, which maintained the name Israel because they took 10 of the 12 tribes. And then the southern kingdom called Judah. So from Rehoboam forward, now we're gonna look at, these are the kings of the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. That's gonna be important for us moving forward. So Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Between Joram and Uzziah, there are three generations. So the word father there really means ancestor of. And there's three generations of, I mean, really messed up kings, But Matthew's trying to get to 14. So he takes these three out. We'll talk about that more in a couple weeks. Verse nine, Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah was uh, eight or nine years old when he became king. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So inside of those five or six verses, now we get 14 generations of kings of Israel. And it's interesting how all of this is happening. But a few things to remember from last week. First is this, Matthew is a Jewish author writing a Jewish letter to Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah. 
His whole point in his book is to convince Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah they had been promised. The problem is the Jewish people had built up in their minds who they thought this Jesus would be and what he would be like, who the Messiah would be and what he would be like. And when they built this ideal, because they built this ideal, now they're looking for something and they've based their lives on some disinformation or some misinformation. It's the same way many of you handle some Christmas songs. There are some lyrics you've gotten wrong for 40 years and you will go to your grave thinking you're right about those Christmas lyrics, won't you? Like we just sang Joy to the World and there's a lyric in there that says, and makes the nations prove. This is one of the misunderstood most misunderstood lyrics of all Christmas songs. Most people believe that says, and makes the nations prudes. Prudes, makes them prudish. It's not how it goes. But the one for me has been this one. Uh, Winter Wonderland. Uh, We will perspire while we drink by the fire. Anybody else think that's what it says? For years, I was like, I don't know what this has to do with Christmas, but man, when I get older, I'm gonna do that because that sounds fun, sweating while I'm drinking. That sounds great. I mean, it's conspire while we dream by the fire. But so the Jews had had this whole mentality of what this Messiah was going to be like. And because of that, they had missed him. And to this day, continue to miss him. Also in a genealogy, the author could use uh, whatever characters he wanted in the genealogy, whatever point he or she was trying to make is how you wrote the genealogy. So Matthew is intentionally doing these sorts of things. So it's a mixed bag of good and evil here. And in fact, each king is himself a mixed bag of good and evil, just like you and just like me. We've got our good days and we've got our bad days. Some of us have more bad days than good days, but this is who these kings, these kings are. But the truth is, when we're looking for something, we often look for what we want to see as opposed to what we're told to be looking for. We see what we want to see and we hear what we want to hear. Those of you who have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So this is the issue here when it comes to this genealogy. All right, so I'm gonna lay that aside and I'm gonna talk real quick about love. When we talk about love, I've had a real wrestle over the past few weeks about it. And it's come from my own personal struggle with really struggling to allow myself to be loved by God. Anybody struggle with that? Just allowing yourself to be loved by God? Man, it's hard. To just believe that he actually loves me is a real struggle for me. But as I began to process through it, I actually got down to the truth that maybe it's because I don't want to be loved by God. Maybe it's because that's too scary for me. Uh, Maybe the expectation of being loved by God, maybe my own shame that drives me, I I don't know. There's something that keeps me from it. And so then I arrived at this, and this statement I think is gonna carry us throughout the morning. The truth is, we would rather be catered to or ordered to than to actually be loved. So I think there are two ways that we approach the world. I think the first way that many of us approach the world is we want to be catered to. Um, We want everything that we want, when we want it, how we want it. And as Americans, we've been trained in that, have we not? Uh, We get frustrated when fast food isn't as fast as we want fast food to be. And then we complain that it's not healthy, even though you knew that going into it. You knew, like you're, it's $6. You understand what you're getting for that. Uh, we want what we want when we want. We want a life without pain and suffering. This, we, we want to be catered to. I think on the other side, there are some of us who we want to be ordered to. And what I mean by that is we are checkbox people. Anybody a checkbox person? Just tell me what the expectations are. I'm gonna check the boxes. And I'm gonna check the heck out of those boxes. I'm gonna check all of them. I'm gonna double check some of them. And what that comes from is an understanding of that's how I am loved. I'm loved if I check boxes. And that's been fed into us. Some of it is just nature versus nurture. But I think for many of us, the struggle with being loved by God is that we're, we have a really jacked up view of what love is. And because we can't settle on an idea of love, we compromise and we look for someone or something that will cater to us. And we've done it in relationships because you run from love. You just look for somebody who's gonna give you what you want, when you want it, how you want it. And when they disappoint you, you move on to someone else. 
or we look for a job or a friendship or relationship where we know what the expectations are and they are clear. And we'll spend our lives with them and we'll have no feelings and emotion for them, but the expectations are clear. So as I began to wrestle through, I think that's kind of where we find ourselves. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's where I find myself with the Lord. I'm stuck in between these two things. Like I wrestle with, if God loved me, why this? And then I wrestle through, I'm gonna make God love me by doing these things. But the truth is, in the evil of my heart, when there are boxes that I don't check or I check and then uncheck, I don't confess that, I cover it. Because I still believe that's what God needs from me is for those boxes to be checked. So with that in mind, I wanna take us through kind of a biblical theology of kingship through these kings. Because before David is mentioned here, there was another king before him, a, a first king of Israel. And the way that he gets appointed king is a really kind of sketchy way, but it points to a lot of where I think we find ourselves in our culture today. So I wanna take us there. This is 1 Samuel chapter eight. Um, the Bible is written, the Old Testament is pretty chronological. So you got the first five books. We just studied Exodus. After Exodus, um, later on, you find that Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land. They have everything they could ever want in life. Like they are catered to. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, there's grapes the size of human skulls. I mean, it's amazing what they find there. Just brilliant. And God has given them this land, right? But when they get to the land, they don't do what God's asked them to do and they leave people and fragments around. And so um, idol worship creeps its way back up. False gods creep their way back in. They begin to intermarry uh, with other religions and a whole heap of trouble happens. And so then God intervenes and he sends what's called judges, which is how we get the book of Judges. And these judges operate in a way really to judge or to lead the people of Israel while they're in the promised land because there's this continual cycle they're in. And maybe you can relate to this where uh, they find peace with God and they, for some reason, maybe they're like you and me, they get bored with the peace of God and they wanna make things interesting. And so they rebel they rebel, find themselves in all sorts of calamity. They beg to God to come rescue them. God sends a judge. The judge rescues them, sets them back at peace. After they repent, they're restored. Peace happens again. They get bored again. And then they uh, go into all kinds of rebellion. This happens over and over again. Well, Samuel is the last of those judges. And in First and Second Samuel was where we meet him. But it's interesting because Samuel has two sons, and Samuel is a man who loves the Lord and desires the things of God, but his sons are not like their daddy. And the people of Israel know it. And so I'm gonna pick up here 1 Samuel chapter eight. I'm gonna start in verse four. And I wanna take us through uh, this story of the appointing of the first king. 1 Samuel chapter eight, verse four. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, behold, you are old, which is not the best way, I think, to get things you want. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king, you old man, to judge us like all the nations. If you're taking notes, you write in your Bible, I would underline that phrase, like all the nations. What they've seen is they've seen other nations and they have this person, this king who rules them, who judges them. They're, they don't want judges. Samuel's sons are gonna be awful. They see the writing on the wall, give us a new one. And then verse six, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. God knows something that Samuel is having a hard time with. God tells Samuel, this isn't about you, this is about me. How do I know that? They've done this to me ever since I brought them out of Egypt. This is what they do. This is not about you, this is about me. And so God's trying to reassure Samuel. The problem for the Israelites is that God wasn't catering to them. Now, he gave them the promised land. They had everything they could ever want. And they still found ways to complain. I know it's not like you, but I do that sometimes. And they found ways to complain they didn't like the way God was leading them. That's just the truth of it. They didn't like him leading them. They didn't like that he wasn't catering to them. They didn't like that there weren't check boxes to kind of check to make him happy. They just didn't like it. 
They saw opposing nations having kings. They're like, well, maybe that king will do it better than, than God can. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in that place where you really don't like the way God is taking your life. You ever experienced that before? Where you really feel like, ah, oh, if I was doing this, I would, my life would be a whole lot different. I really feel like you've led me to a dead end here, God. So the Israelites feel the same way and they don't like the way that God is leading them. They just don't like it. They don't like him being king and God knows it. He says, listen, they're taking it out on you, Samuel. It's me, I'm the problem, it's not you. But then look what he says in verse nine. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Parents, you understand this. You know when your kids wear you down so much because they're so annoying and asking for that thing? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? You love them and I love mine. But there are times where I'm like, I, if I say no one more time, I'm gonna go crazy. And so you get to the point where you say, fine. Any parents do that? You're better than me. Maybe you don't do it. I do it. Fine, have it. I don't care. I just don't care. But then I do this because I'm passive aggressive and it's a good gift of mine. Is I say, all right, but listen, if that's what you want, here's what will happen. And don't you dare come down to my room at one in the morning because you wanted two more bowls of ice cream and because your stomach hurts and you can't handle it. Don't you dare come down. That's what I say. So this is what God does right here. That's fine. Tell them they can have what they want in verse nine, but then solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the 10th of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. That sounds like government, doesn't it? Does it not right there? He's gonna take all the best things you have. Verse 16, he will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your young donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slave. So here's what Samuel is saying. Listen, if you want a king, that's fine. I need you to know how kings work. T kings take everything that you have and they use it for their own purposes. That's what kings do. They're gonna put your sons on the front line of battle and you'll never see them again. They're gonna take your daughters and put them in his kingdom, in his throne room, and they're going to work for him. This is, if that's what you want, that's fine, but here's how it's gonna go. And then Samuel drops the mic in verse 18. And you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself. Any parents, you understand? Yeah, whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And I'm reading like, man, that's, Pretty convincing argument. Like if that's the closing statement from the lawyer, I'm like, that's a good point. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't. But the Israelites, verse 19, they refused to obey the voice of Samuel and said, no, we're good. Still sounds good to us. There shall be a king over us. Why? Verse 20, that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So notice what they want. They want a king to judge them. They want to know what the boxes are to check. And they want a king who will fight their battles, who will give them what they want, who will, who will keep them at peace. This is what we want. I hear what you're saying, Samuel. I think we're still in. Give us the king. And when Samuel in verse 21 heard the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So now Samuel says, fine, if that's what you want, but you go find the king. Go back to your city and I want you to find the king that we're looking for. Now, these Israelites, they have a prototype. They've seen kings of other nations. They've seen kings of Manasseh. They, they've seen other kings. They've seen the Amalekite king. They've seen them. And so now they have an idea of what a king should look like. Now, back then, leaders of nations were not like our leaders of nations who sit behind a desk and write reports all day. That's not what they did. These leaders of nations actually fought wars. And so they had to be ready to fight the wars. So the next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter nine, we read this in verse one. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, 
the son of Becheroth, the son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. So here's our first clue. What we find is a wealthy man of the tribe of Benjamin. This is a affluent tribe and he's a man of wealth. What we're gonna find is he has a son who might be fit to be king. But the first thing we know about him is that he is wealthy. Then look at verse two. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. We know two things about Saul. He is rich and he is good looking. And all you ladies in middle school who had a list of what your husband would be like, these were the top two, were they not? I know you're a Christian. like, oh, he has to love Jesus. No, no, no. You want him to be wealth and hot. That's what you wanted. And down the line was, I don't know, maybe a good dad to my kids. And so here we meet Saul. Saul is wealthy and he is attractive. And so they decide, listen, he's got no business running a nation, right? He's never led anything but the qualifications are wealthy and attractive. And I'm just glad that we aren't like that anymore, right, in our society. I'm just glad that we have higher standards. But the truth is, if you're rich and good looking, I'm gonna, people will listen to whatever that person says. It's crazy, isn't it? Like crazy. Because you're wealthy and handsome and you can mumble rap, I will trust you to say everything you want. So here's this Saul. The first few things we know about him are he's wealthy and he is handsome. And he continues, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. So he was just like your husband. You can tell him. That reminds me of you, heart, sweetheart. That's just like you. But then this is interesting. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So I don't know if from like his feet to his shoulders, he wasn't taller. <laughs> and then he just has like a Phineas and Ferb head and now he's taller than everybody. I don't know. But here's what we learn. And so this is important, particularly in ancient Jewish literature. The descriptions of people are more than surface descriptions. They're telling us about their character. So here's what we learn about Saul. He looks like a king. He looks kingly. He's put together. He's wealthy. He's attractive. He's tall. The understanding here is that he's broad-shouldered. He's, he's just a well-built man. And so the people of Israel, when they hear they need a king, this is who comes to mind for them. And so they bring him before Saul, or before Samuel. Saul fits the bill. And so Samuel ultimately anoints him as king. And Saul is the first king of the people of Israel. But again, not a whole lot of qualification other than he's wealthy and attractive and tall. But he does a pretty good job for a while. And then things just go off the rails pretty quickly. And this man, who is wealthy, the best-looking man of People Magazine of the Israelites, he is the best-looking one and the tallest, who seems to have everything going for him, becomes the most insecure man on the planet. Anybody know anyone like that? And what happens is the people of Israel recognize they're going to need somebody else. And God then intervenes. And God takes his spirit from Saul. And in 1 Samuel 16... Samuel now is grieved over the fact that this is happening. And God, and I love him, this is how God speaks to his prophet. In verse one of 1 Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. What he's saying is, I've got another king. Quit crying about it. Let's go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Saul came from um, the tribe of Benjamin. David now is coming from the town of Bethlehem, which is complete polar opposites. So if you've got like John's Creek, that would have been where Saul came from. And then you've got like Jackson. Is, is that offensive? Um, You've got like Florida, and that's where, <laughs> is that better? And that's where, now that's, uh, that's where David comes from. Not a whole lot of money, really nothing to write home about. So he says, go, I've got a man there by the name of Jesse, but notice what God says, now it's my turn. I'm picking the king now. I'll let you try, you failed, I'll pick a king. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And that's, that says all you need to know about Saul, doesn't it? 
If he hears I'm going to find someone else, he's gonna kill me. And the Lord said, well, then take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice the Lord. Then fine, just go as an act of worship. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you, not who the people say, but who I pick as king. So he meets with Jesse and Jesse brings his sons and he's got a lot of them. And he brings his sons before Samuel. He's a proud father. So he, he begins with the oldest one, verse six. And when they came, he looked on Eliab, who is the oldest of Jesse's sons. And Samuel thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. So reading between the lines, here's what we understand. Samuel, Samuel saw Eliab and was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's built like Saul. We want this one. The oldest of eight kids looked at his, at his stature, was like, yes, obviously this is the one. And God says, actually, this is not the one. Do not, for the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so Jesse goes through the rest of his sons. And he has eight of them, but there's only seven in the house. Because when you have that many kids, sometimes you don't know where the other one is. You just, you don't know. And so verse 10, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And here's what's interesting. Seven to a Jewish man or woman is a number of completion and perfection. And so you get through seven and Samuel's like, well, that's gotta be it, right? That's it. That's perfect. It's complete. Let's go to the, another home. And then Samuel says to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse says, I think, oh no, there's not. I, there's one There remains yet the youngest. But behold, pay attention, He's keeping the sheep. In other words, I don't think he's the one you want. Like there's a reason I didn't bring him here. He's out keeping sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he, David, was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Now, ruddy does not mean ruddy like we think it means ruddy. It doesn't mean um, redheaded and freckly, like we think ruddy. Ruddy here means, it means red-skinned, but you gotta remember, these are Middle Eastern people, and so it's not fair-skinned Irish ruddy. This would have been indicative of somebody who worked in the fields. It would have been the idea of the way the sun changes the color of our skin. So what he's, by saying ruddy, what he's saying is, ah, he's like a field guy, though. He's not an office with a crown on his head kind of guy. Like, he's the one pouring the pavement. This is, this is who he is. But then we read that he had beautiful eyes. Now, what that means is that he had pure eyes. There was a purity about him. So this David, appearance-wise, not the same stature as Saul, but there's something about something pure about him. And he was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. So what the authors of the Old Testament are doing for us is they're comparing Saul and David. And Saul looks like a king for the people, but David looks like a king for God. And so ultimately, David begins rising at the very same time that Saul's insecurities are getting the best of him and he is declining. Saul, when God removed his spirit from him, has these tormenting moments. And the only thing that settles Saul down is David playing the harp or the lyre. It's the only thing that settles him down. And so that's great until the battle with Goliath. And David kills Goliath. And the servants of Saul are like, man, Saul killed hundreds, but David killed thousands. He's amazing. And what was once soothing to Saul now becomes very annoying to him. And at one point, David is playing his instrument trying to soothe Saul, and Saul throws a spear at him. And he misses but this is the relationship. As David rises to power, Saul is declining. David ultimately takes over. A number of things happened. We talked about it last week with Bathsheba and a number of just up and down sorts of things for him. But he reaches this point in his life where he wants to build a temple for God. But God now has a prophet named Nathan and God tells Nathan, hey, tell David, thanks, but no thanks. But I'll get, I'll get my house. It's gonna come from your son. So 2 Samuel chapter seven, this is important. Saul's who the people wanted. David is who God wanted. Verse eight. Now, therefore, God says to Nathan, 
You shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over the people of Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The word there's like family. He'll make you a family. And when your days are fulfilled, you will lie down, you'll pass away, you'll lay with your fathers. And I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So in the moment, speaking of Solomon, Solomon will build the temple. But I want you to pay attention to this next verse. Because what's happening, is remember Israel didn't like how God was leading them. And what they said was, we don't like the way you're leading us. It feels a little too ambiguous. We just don't like it. We'd rather have a king. We know what we're getting and we'll take all of the garbage that comes with having a king. We'd rather have that. And so now God is making a statement today. We're gonna learn a lot about how God leads his people. There's a shift that happens here. Verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So here's the shift. They want a king, but God's gonna be a father who's also a king. So he says this, I, I'm gonna love him. I'm gonna love this nation like a father. But the first evidence he gives of his love is discipline. So for all of us who want God to cater to us, you need to read this again. When God says he loves us, what he means is he loves us like a father loves his son, so he disciplines us. So if you've had those moments of, I just, I thought Jesus would be better. I thought my life would be better. I would direct your attention to 2 Samuel 7. And I would tell you, well, listen, if God's disciplining you, it is better. Then he says this as he continues, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. This word steadfast, this phrase steadfast love is one Hebrew word, chesed. And it's a very interesting word. We have a hard time translating it into English. We get steadfast love, we get loving kindness, we get loving mercy. The idea is a stubborn kind of love. It's a digging your heels in, I'm not going anywhere kind of a love. It's this kind of love. And so for those of us who are checkbox people, this kind of love drives you crazy. Because while you're checking boxes and the other person doesn't even know there are boxes, the steadfast love of God appeals to both of you. And that drives us crazy, doesn't it? Because I'm the one working. I'm the older brother in the field. Why does the younger brother get the party? And God's like, ah, oh, because of his said, that's why. Because of my steadfast love. And it will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you as your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Here's what God says to David. Your throne shall be established forever. And herein is where we find our struggle because we'd rather be catered to or ordered to than to actually be loved. Here's why we have a hard time accepting the love of God. Because the love of God disciplines and the love of God doesn't go anywhere. And we have a really hard time with that. Which makes sense why we default into kings, doesn't it? Because while kings might let us down, at least we know what we're getting ourselves into. With God, it feels like I don't know what boxes to check and it feels like my life might not be all rainbows and gumdrops. And I would say, yeah, that's how you know he loves you. This is a bit of our struggle. We'd rather have a king like everyone else has a king. We want check boxes. We also want our rights and our freedoms. But I think being loved by God makes us uncomfortable. I think for some of us, it's too subjective. There aren't enough boxes. For some of us, it's too personal because there's discipline. And so we default to kings. 
Well, in the New Testament, uh, Jesus comes and establishes his ministry and he's preaching a message. And the message becomes that the kingdom of God is here. And if the kingdom of God is here, there must be a king here. But there are Jews who are still struggling because they still think this king is gonna come overthrow Roman government and nothing like that has happened yet. But this message of Jesus is really appealing to a lot of people. And there's a group of men called the Pharisees. And some of the Pharisees made up what's called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a group of men appointed by Jews who would work with the Roman government. The Roman government had occupied all of the provinces of the Israelite nation. And so at this point, their Romans like, ah, we don't understand all the kosher stuff. I don't wanna deal with all of that. You know that stuff. Make yourself a ruling council and they'll handle all the religious stuff. We'll handle all the governmental stuff. So they have a Sanhedrin. And we meet a man from the Sanhedrin in John chapter three. John chapter three, verse one. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews, meaning he was part of the Sanhedrin. So Nicodemus comes. Nicodemus is schooled in the Old Testament. He knows what he's looking for when it comes to a Messiah. He's also probably wealthy because of being in the Sanhedrin, and he's very well respected. But this Jesus character is messing everything up because these people are drawn to this message he's proclaiming. And so in verse two, he comes to Jesus. This man came to Jesus by night. And he said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, you, we know you're a teacher come from God. And here's how we know, because no one can do these miracles, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. And then Jesus cuts right to the chase. He knows exactly what Nicodemus's problem is. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is really struggling because you've got all these people around who seem or are saying they've seen the Messiah, who are saying things like that the kingdom of God is at hand, it's near. And Nicodemus, the one trained in Old Testament literature, is like, I don't see it, man. Like, what are you talking about? He can't figure out how there's a kingdom of God, but there's no ruling and reigning king. He can't, he can't figure it out. His problem is he's looking for Saul, but God has sent David. Does that make sense? And so Nicodemus can't figure out, how do, how do I get into the kingdom of God? And Jesus knows it. He knows it right away. He says, all right, here's the deal, man. Like, you're gonna have to relearn everything you thought you knew. You gotta be born again. You gotta do this like a baby. And Nicodemus is educated and he's logical. And he can't figure out, I've checked all the boxes, but I still don't see the king. And I've gotten so many things. Like, God's given me so much but I still can't see the king. What am I doing wrong? And God tells him, or Jesus tells him, well, you have to be born again. And then Nicodemus' answer is, that sounds crazy. And he defaults to logic. And Nicodemus says, so like, I have to enter my mother's womb again to be reborn. Is that what you're saying? He defaults to logic because he's got boxes to check. Is that the box? If that's the box, I'll check it. I'll figure it out. I don't know how but I'll figure out how, how do we do this. But here's the problem with logic. Human logic will never lead you to the kingdom. You only find the kingdom through godly love. And while we're defaulting to human logic, we're missing the kingdom of God in our midst here today because that's the sticking point for us. Those of us who are catered to people, we've got a really jacked up view of love. And so we're looking for love in all the wrong places. And we're looking for love in ways that if God loved me, I won't suffer. And then you suffer. You go through a breakup, you go through a sickness, you have to bury a loved one. You lose a job, you can't pay your bills. And the question is, does God really love me? Because human logic says, if God loved me, I wouldn't have to go through this. If God is really is all powerful, then why do I have to go through suffering? That's, that's, we'd rather be catered to. So then, if that's our view of love and that happens, we give up on it altogether and we just find whatever will cater to us. Whatever makes us feel what we wanna feel in the moment. And so it might be a relationship, it might be the pursuit of money, it, it might be bourbon, it might be cocaine, whatever it is. We run to that thing that will give us what we want. It might be pornography, whatever. And so those of us who wanna be catered to, the moment suffering happens, we run to logically something else. 
And then there are those of us who we want to be ordered to. And so logic doesn't help us a lot here. Because logic tells us, man, if I'm doing the right things, I should get the love of God. And in fact, if I'm doing more right things than somebody else, I should get more of the love of God. And logic isn't helping us here. But there is a way for us to know that God loves us. Because that's the question, right? Like, how do you know that you know that God loves you? And for the ones being catered to, the moment suffering comes in, that's a real big question. I thought he loved me. And then the moment you're frustrated with checking all the boxes and still not feeling any closer to the Lord, but I thought he loved me. And then when you know yourself and you know your own sin, like how could God love me though? There's no way. And so then you default to other things. If you're questioning whether or not God loves you because of your own shame and guilt, you're gonna run towards other things. Well, the Bible is clear. You wanna know how you know that God loves you? 1 John chapter 4, verse nine. In this, the love of God was revealed, made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. How do you know God loves you? Christmas, that's how you know God loves you. That's how you know. In three weeks, we will celebrate the manifestation of God's love to you. You wanna know how he loves you? It's not because you're cancer free, it's because he sent Jesus to be with you. That's how you know. How do you know God loves you? It's not because you've done all the right things, It's because he sent Jesus to be with you. In this, the love of God was made manifest. That God sent his only son to the world that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we loved God. Box checkers, you can't do it. He doesn't love you because you loved him. He loves you. And he sent his son to be the propitiation, to be the ransom payment for our sins. And this this is why Jesus does not argue with Nicodemus based on human logic. He doesn't say, no, I didn't mean like that kind of be born again. I meant this or that. That's not what he says. Here's how Jesus wraps up his argument with uh, conversation with Nicodemus. John chapter three, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You wanna see the kingdom, Nicodemus? You gotta know God loves you. And he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But he continues, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So if you're like me today, maybe you just need to let yourself be loved by God. And there's no better time to do it than when we're celebrating the manifestation of his love and that he sent his son. What we celebrate this month is the love of God. Problem is, we're looking for Saul. But God sent a little baby in Bethlehem. And we're missing it. But aren't you tired? Like, aren't you tired? Box checkers are trying to earn the love of God. Aren't you tired of it? Aren't you worn out? Aren't you just beaten down by striving to make God love you? only to see other people experience the love of God who seem like they don't deserve it. And what about you who wanna be catered to? Aren't you tired of being disappointed by God because he doesn't do what you want him to do? Like, aren't you tired of that? Aren't you tired of constantly feeling let down and frustrated by God? There is a king who's better than Saul and he's better than David and he loves you. And he's great enough to give you everything you ever wanted. And he's good enough not to. There is a king. There is a king. So how do we do it? How do we know that God loves us? How do we see the king? What Jesus tells us in his epic sermon in Matthew chapter five, verse three, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You wanna see the king? You need to find yourself poor in spirit. What that means is bankrupt. What that means is finally getting to the point where you realize I've got nothing to offer him. I got nothing. Like I've checked all the boxes. I got nothing. I've been a good boy. I've been a good girl and I've got nothing to offer. 
It means finally laying down the fact that you don't deserve health. You don't deserve wealth. You don't deserve prosperity. You are poor in spirit. That's, that's when you get the kingdom because that's when you see the king, when we are poor in spirit. There's nothing we can earn. There's nothing we deserve. But at some point for us, our view of love got really distorted. Our view of a king got distorted. And I'll tell you when it was. It was when sin happened in your life. That's when. So it's probably when you were born. And then there's a moment where like Adam and Eve, you thought that God was holding out on you. And you saw the enemy coming and pursuing you. And you believed him. And you chased him. And from that point forward now, it's just the shame cycle. It's the guilt cycle. It's the confusion of what love actually is. Well, as Mallory comes up, I wanna share something interesting with you. Samuel is giving his farewell speech. He's dying. Um, Saul is finally taking over. Samuel gives his farewell speech. And you know how people who are older, like they just lose their filter altogether and they say the things they've wanted to say for 50 years and they finally say it all. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you don't. Maybe, maybe you should hang around with my family. Then you'd understand a little more. Okay, so um, Samuel is, is just his farewell speech. But he, he clues us into the fact that he knew all along why they wanted a king before. First Samuel chapter five, 12, verse 12. It says, when you saw that Nechash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So we read that like, oh, it makes sense. There's a military coming. There's a king, Nechash, coming, and I get it. Well, here's the layer that we're missing because we don't know Hebrew. The name of this king, Nechash, is the Hebrew word for serpent. It's the same word used in Genesis chapter three for the serpent in the garden. So what Samuel is saying is, no, I see what's happening. It was just like Adam and Eve. Like when the serpent came, you stopped believing and trusting in God and instead you looked for something else to make you feel catered to or feel like your boxes were checked. I get it, totally get it. So for you and for me, at some point what happened was that Nechash came to us, the serpent came and we didn't believe God could help us. We didn't believe he could help us and so we ran to other kings we ran to success and money. We ran to a president or a government official. We ran to a spouse to make them our king. We ran to our kids. We ran to our parents. And if you're being honest, you would say every single one of those kings have let you down because they were never meant to bear the weight of kingship for you. And you question whether or not God loves you. And what I'm saying is Emmanuel, God is with us. At the end of that passage in Matthew chapter one, we read of Jeconiah. It's interesting because in Jeremiah 22, Jeconiah gets a curse placed on him. And he, the curse is you will no longer be called a father. You will no longer be known as one who had children. Ultimately what's being said is there'll be no more kings who come from your line, Jeconiah. You are that bad. He led the people into Babylonian exile. So for the Jews, what happened in that moment is, well, then I thought the Messiah was coming from the line of David. How is that going to happen if there are no more kings from the bloodline of Jeconiah who's from the bloodline of David? Well, what's interesting is that Matthew is giving the genealogy of Joseph and Jesus is not in the bloodline of Joseph. His father is God in heaven. Joseph is his stepfather which means Jesus doesn't come from the bloodline of Jeconiah, but he comes from the kingly line of David. So I say all that to say this, nothing you could ever do could stop God's love from getting to you, nothing. Nothing. Nothing you've ever done. Nothing you've ever said, nothing you've ever seen, no place you've ever gone. Nothing you've ever drank or smoked or committed, nothing can keep God's love from getting to you, nothing. And if you found a way to get Jesus, a king,
king of the line of David, from a stunted line of Jeconiah, he can figure out how to get his love to you. Will you see him today? Will you see the kingdom of God in our midst today? He came because he loves you, because he loves me. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? I don't know where you find yourself today. Man, I have wrestled so hard with believing that God loves me. I know my own stuff. I know my own heart. I know my own compulsions. I know my own greeds. I know it. And as a box checker, it drives me crazy. Then I read that I know God loves me because of Christmas, because of the birth of his son. And I read that there's nothing I could ever do to keep his love from me. And I'm overwhelmed by the love of God. So if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. God loves you. And the evidence of his love for you is not a prosperous life. It's his withness, that he is with you. And the evidence for God's love in your life is not based on what you've done for him, but that he came for you. And so maybe this morning you're wrestling with all of it and you're just weary and burnt out from the journey. Prayer is that the love of God will restore your soul today you would begin to trust him. And that when that serpent shows his head again, you'll be able to say, uh-uh. Because Christmas, Jesus has come. God, we love you. Or we're trying to. Uh, but we are trying to believe that you love us. So if there's anyone in the room today who is having a hard time believing it today, God, would you settle in their hearts? You love them. Like you really, really love them. Like a father who loves his children. You'll discipline, but your steadfast love means you're not going anywhere. So help us to trust Emmanuel today, that you are with us. And may that love in us propel us to loving other people. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.